Okay, we are in Galatians chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 14. And you have a quote at the top of your handout by Max Anders from his commentary. It says, the law's purpose was never to save. That was never the purpose of the law. Its purpose has always been to be a standard that would show us the magnitude of our sin, our need for grace, and thus lead us to Christ. The law was a temporary measure only until faith in Christ was inaugurated. Therefore, grace is superior to the law. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that. We're going to look a little bit more in depth about how the law was unable. But why was the law given? The law was given because of sin. The law was given because we have sinned and sin brings chaos and division and pain and separation. So the law was given to protect God's people, to keep them separate from the rest of the world and to bring order out of chaos to give them laws to live by that would protect their health as well as their relationships. And that was going to protect them because the one through whom, the one that had been promised in Genesis 3.15 would come through the lineage of Abraham. And we're going to look at Abraham this morning. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 5. Paul's been explaining to them already and exposing the false teaching of the Judaizers who had come in to try to get them to live under the law again. And so now he gets really stern. You foolish Galatians, like what is wrong with you? Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now they did not physically see him crucified, but Paul had preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they understood that he had experienced Christ, the resurrected Christ, just as the disciples had seen him raised from the dead. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing through faith? So he's recounting their experience and telling them, you received salvation. You received the Spirit by grace through faith. Why do you think now that you have to go back and live under the law? Why would you think you need to be circumcised and obey the law? Um, In fact, John Stott says, having embraced the truth at the beginning that sinners are justified by grace in Christ through faith, they've now adopted the view that circumcision and the works of the law are also necessary for justification. And you look at verses 2 through 5, and you see he asks four rhetorical questions. Now, what is a rhetorical question? It's one that does not really expect an answer because the answer is given in the question. It's obvious, right? So what is he saying to them? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? They know that. It was by hearing with faith is how they received him. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Then he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? That word suffer can also be translated experience. Did you experience so many things in vain? And in fact, um, the Greek English lexicon says the first statement in Galatians 3, 4 is generally interpreted as referring to the valuable experiences which the Galatians had in receiving the Spirit on the basis of hearing and believing. Some scholars, however, understand that particular Greek word in Galatians 3, 4 as referring to difficult experiences resulting from those who opposed this new faith in Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were coming in and trying to put additional laws and regulations on them so they could be Jewish because they knew they were God's chosen people. They had been set apart. What they didn't understand was that they were a picture of what was to come. They were a picture of a physical reality that would become a spiritual truth in Christ Jesus. Then we move into um, the Old Testament scriptures in verses 6 through 9. 
He actually quotes scriptures from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Habakkuk. And this is when he goes back and brings Abraham back in. Let's look at 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God. Now, what did he just say in 5? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And he told him that in Genesis chapter 12, when he called him initially to go, and I will show you the land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. And Abram believed, and he said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then in Genesis 15, what does he do? He calls him outside, and he says, look up at the stars of the sky. If you can count them, you can count your descendants, because your descendants will outnumber the stars. And what he's saying is, you have been grafted in, Gentiles. You don't have to become Jews, because it is not your physical birth. It's your spiritual birth that enables you to be a part of this inheritance that we have because we're in Christ Jesus. He says, Abraham is our example. And what does righteousness mean? Mean It means the act of doing what God requires. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always do what God requires. I am so grateful that Jesus Christ has given me his righteousness because Christ came to live the life we're unable to live and then to pay our penalty by dying an atoning death on the cross. And as we're going to see as we move further down through this passage, those who live under the law are literally under a curse because none of us can live up to it. Only Jesus did. He didn't have to die. He was perfect, righteous, without sin. But he chose to take our place so that he could then grant us credit to our account, his righteousness. So how are we justified? Let's go back to 9 and work down through 14. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You have become one of those stars in the sky that God was pointing him to. Because if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you are now a descendant of Abraham. You have been grafted into the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the inheritance and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that we have because we're in him. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's out of Deuteronomy. None of us measure up. None of us have obeyed all the laws. And we know to break one is to break the law. It separates us from God. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. 
was the promise given to Abraham. And when God told him, no, the heir will come from your body and your descendants will outnumber the stars and you will bless the nations, Abraham believed. And we see in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6, salvation. Abraham believed and God credited or reckoned it to him um, as righteousness. He became righteous out of belief. And that's what Paul is going to continue to argue even next week as he moves into how the law was simply just our tutor. It was to bring us to this point of recognizing our need for a Savior. So those who live by the law, it tells us, are under a curse. To be cursed is to be under judgment, to be separated from God, to be condemned by Him. So we see now in this passage there are only two choices, two paths, which we know that's a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. We either obey or disobey God. We either belong to God or we belong to the world, the flesh, and the enemy. So there are two paths, the path of faith that leads to righteousness, and the fruit of righteousness is Christ-like character. What do we know about Christ? Christ came to seek and to save those who were lost. Christ said he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He came to show us God, who God is. And what does the Bible tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave. So we are to be like Christ if we are in him. We are being conformed into Christ's likeness. That's the path of faith that leads to righteousness. Now, the path of works or the law leads to the curse. So what is the fruit of legalism, seeking to live under the law? It leads to pride to judgment, competition, petty comparison, and division. Now, the challenge of this passage is straightforward. We must renounce the proud folly of supposing that we can establish our own righteousness or make ourselves acceptable to God. Instead, we must come humbly to the cross where Christ bore our curse and cast ourselves entirely upon his, his mercy. And then by God's sheer grace, because we're in Christ Jesus by faith, we shall receive justification, eternal life, and the indwelling spirit. The blessing of Abraham will be ours. And that's John's thought. Listen to Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Now listen to this. To present you how? Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That means if you have been under accusation this morning, if the enemy has been telling you that you don't measure up, that you're not good enough, that you're not loved, you need to recognize that voice as the voice of the enemy. And what does this scripture say? No more accusation. You're going to be presented to the Lord holy, without blemish, blemish and free from from accusation. So there is no accusation the enemy can bring against you that Jesus Christ has not satisfied through his death on the cross, paying your debt and my debt. In both Romans and Galatians, Paul is referring to the fact that when a person exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is placed in transcendent spiritual union with Christ in the historical event of his death and resurrection in which the penalty of sin was paid in full. That takes us back to last week's passage that we were looking at in Galatians 2.20. What does it tell us? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith, not effort, not the law, not works, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If we could have obeyed the law and the law was all it took, Jesus Christ would not have had to die. But none of us is worthy. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Not one has been able to live and obey the law except Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And so we understand to be crucified, it says, actually, Timothy George said elsewhere, Paul used the expression to die to, not only with reference to the law, but also in relation to the self, sin, and the world. In each of these cases, Paul meant that his relationship to these entities self, sin, world law, had been so decisively altered by his union with Christ that they no longer control, dominate, or define his existence. Now, what does that mean? That means if you are in Christ Jesus, you are now defined by Christ, which means when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. You are literally this morning, in God's eyes, holy, without spot or blemish, and free from accusation. We just read that. It's exactly what the Bible says. But you say, but oh, Donna, you don't know how I, you don't know my sin. You don't know how my mouth works. You don't know the things I think. Oh, I probably do. (laughs) I probably experienced some of the same things. But what do we do to those things? We die to them. That's what Galatians 2.20 is talking about. Because now we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We can actually die to those old sinful patterns of thinking. We die to the flesh. Because the flesh leads us into sin, which is enslavement. Jesus Christ came to set us free. That's what the freedom's about. It's being able to walk in freedom to be able to love as Christ loves. To be free from the... really. If my identity is in Christ and my need for love and significance is met in him, I'm able to love everybody else out of the overflow. I don't have to suck life out of them. They don't have to make me feel good about myself. I can just love them anyway, regardless of how they treat me. Because if I'm dead, guess what? I don't have rights. You can't hurt my feelings because I'm dead. I have died. And you know what? It's an accomplished fact. It's past tense. Did you notice that? I am crucified with Christ. Past tense, an accomplished fact. It's already done. There's nothing you have to do. Praise the Lord. That's right, Michelle. (laughs) There's nothing you have to do except believe and receive what Jesus Christ died to purchase for you. And once you receive it, his spirit comes to live within you. And he begins to change us from the inside out. We've been so accustomed to living from the outside and living the way the world lives and valuing the way the world values. And Christ gives us a whole new value system. It turns the value system of the world upside down and inside out. It's so completely different. You can't do it on your own. The only way you can see, the only way you can experience it is to believe. It's by grace through faith that we're able to experience it. So we're crucified past tense. That means just what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, that anyone who belongs to Christ has become what? A new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Christ lives in me, present tense. I am crucified past tense. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ is living in me. And I'm living by faith currently, right now, in the Son of God. So Galatians 2.20 gives us the prescription for living 
the spirit-filled life, the crucified life, the life to which we've been called because we're now in Christ. And you know what happens when you start living the crucified life? The enemy can't wiggle into your relationships and bring division. Division is demonic because it comes from the devil. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said in Mark, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And that goes for a marriage, for a family, for a church, for a business, for a small group. If you allow the enemy to come in and divide, that relationship, that group, that business, that church will not stand. And Luke says, but he, Jesus, knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls In Psalm 133, God is talking about how beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He compares it to the dew of Hermon just coming down the mountain and the the oil on Aaron's beard, the high priest coming down and coating his garment. It starts from the top and comes down. Christ is our head and he has brought unity. He has unified us. He has made us one in Christ Jesus, one body with Christ as the head. So when we come together under Christ, there will be unity. And at the end of Psalm 133, it says, there God commands the blessing. Do you want God to command a blessing over your life? Walk in unity with Christ as your head and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And do not give the enemy a foothold. Okay, so I want us to think about some scenarios. Because this is all well and good when we just think in our head, oh, okay, I'm going to die to my flesh. But what does this practically look like? Okay, you're at work. Somebody at work offends you. Maybe they give credit for something you've done to somebody else or they overlook you for promotion or whatever it is, but you've been offended. And the more you think about the offense, guess what happens? It grows, doesn't it? It gets bigger in your mind. And the offense gets graver and the feelings become more powerful. And so then you kind of pull away from this person and you start dwelling on it a little bit more and then you decide you need to tell somebody about it. And so then you tell somebody in the office and then guess what happens? Division. And then people start picking sides, don't they? Absolutely. Guys, that's how the evil one works to destroy us. And so we've got to be wise to his tactics. That's exactly what Paul was telling the Ephesians. We need to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. We know what they are. God has made it very evident in his word how we are to live because we're in Christ Jesus. And it looks totally different from the world. Okay, think about this one. A friend invites some people to go to lunch and you're not invited. What you gonna do? (laughs) Are you gonna get mad at them? Are you gonna go tell somebody about it? Or do you just say, you know what? They may have just forgotten. And you just choose to reach out to somebody else that maybe needs a friend. Or you're dating someone whose father will not accept you because of the color of your skin. This is a legitimate scenario that a young woman came to me about on Sunday morning and I was able to listen to her and to be able to tell her, you know what? You're both believers. You're both adults. And if you're both believers, just being a believer is the only thing that God requires for your union as a husband and wife because they're moving toward marriage. And I hate that, but you know what you do? You love him anyway. You keep praying, and if Jesus, I mean, if you believe the Lord is bringing the two of you together, that he's bringing you together in marriage to serve him and to partner together in his kingdom, then you rise above that, and you love him anyway. And you shower him with love, and you encourage him, and you bless him. Because what does Jesus tell us we're to do? Bless those who curse you. He said, you have heard that it is said, love, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. 
right? We live, we're called to a higher standard than the law. We can't keep the law, but we're called to a higher standard that deals with the heart. And it's when Jesus Christ takes over our heart that he changes us and enables us to live like Christ. You see a social media post in some of your friends and you're not in the picture. Or your mother-in-law says something and you take it the wrong way. Okay, what you gonna do? <laughs> and if you're a young woman in here with children, just remember one day you will be the mother-in-law. <laughs> And you reap what you sow. So I would take that into account as you think about how you treat your mother-in-law and how, how you, uh, what you say about her. We live under one law. And we're going to get into this a little bit more as well. In the garden, there was one law. You remember that? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only law they had. They broke that law. And guess what? After sin came in and chaos and separation and pain and death entered our lives... There are 613 laws in the Old Testament that would be put over Israel. They were to live under, to be separate from the world, and to be obedient to God. But after Christ, who didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, we're under one law. And we're going to see that when we get to Galatians chapter 5, and the law is the law of love. We have one law, and it's the law of love. We know that because Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to the law of love. And the difference in living under the law or grace, under the law, I'm striving to do all I'm supposed to do. So consequently, since I'm trying to measure up, I will be measuring everybody else as well. I notice offenses, and I compare how I'm treated to the treatment of others. Because there's a standard, right? There's a law that I'm living up to. But under grace, I'm surrendering that I might be who God desires me to be as I reflect him to a lost and dying world. The doing flows out of the being. In legalism and living under the law, it's behavior modification from the outside in. We're trying to do the right thing, measure up, Meet the standard, but we all fall short. So in Christ, we're called to die to that old way of living and let his spirit take over who now resides within us and flow out of us from the inside out so we're learning how to live a brand new way. We have to jettison our old ways of thinking, and now we live under the law of love and the control and power of the Holy Spirit. So we have the power. The problem is our flesh keeps getting in the way because we get offended or our feelings get hurt and we start nursing that hurt. And when we nurse that hurt, guess what? We step back into the flesh and the enemy comes in and he's able then to divide and conquer. He's able to bring pain and separation into our relationships. But if we refuse that, if we refuse to be offended, that's 1 Corinthians 13 love. That's the love that Christ has called us to. And we have a choice. We can choose. I either choose to be offended or I choose to let it go. And you know, guys, there is great benefit to getting older. Because you just don't have the energy you once had to take up an offense. <laughs> you just really recognize that things don't really matter. The things that you thought were so important. In fact, evidently, Steve confessed that he had once given me a Valentine card that didn't it wasn't up to standard. Let me just say it that way. And I'll tell you why. 
I think we had two children. I don't remember if we had Allie yet or not. We lived in Jackson, Tennessee. And Valentine's Day, I always did something for the girls and something special for Steve. But I'd always fix like his favorite meal at night. And I'd have balloons on the kids' chairs and, you know, little Valentine happies. And I'd do a very special dessert. And so, you know, when you've got little people, pulling that off is not a minor thing to pull off. I mean, it takes a lot of energy and forethought, right? So I had decorated the dining room. I had everything so nice. All he had for me that he brought in from work that day was a card. I pulled the card out of the envelope, and in the front of the card it says, to my wonderful husband. <laughs> I would like to be able to tell you I did not take up an offense, but I did. <laughs> I was like, I have knocked myself out, and you can't even read the card? <laughs> But can I just tell you now, I would laugh about it like this. Like, does it really matter? I mean, the man stopped and got a card, you know. He's, <laughs> he said, but I read the inside. <laughs> Why can we not just find the humor? Laugh at ourselves, laugh at the situations, and recognize, you know, like I used to tell my girls, the entire world's dying and going to hell. Is that really that important? In the grand scheme of things, does that really matter? I'm called to lay down my life just like Jesus Christ did and to serve, to love, to bring others into the kingdom. That's my focus. And if that is my focus, I don't have time to be petty. I I don't have room for all that stuff. That is not what Christ has called us to. I mentioned the definition for grace, what God requires, God provides. A couple of weeks ago, and so I want you to remember that. God has given us his grace That means right now, whatever's going on in your life, whatever God is requiring of you, he has already provided for you. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Faith is, if I believe, I will see. If I will believe, I will see. That's exactly what God did when he called Abraham. You go where I have told you and I will show you. (laughs) Go and I will show It's the same way it is today. Abraham is a beautiful picture of how we're to live by faith. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but God is already in our tomorrow. So we don't have to know. We don't have to worry about it. We just trust Jesus. We live today to the fullest, serving him, serving our fellow man, loving other people. Guys, that's a full-time job. Dying to my flesh every moment is a full-time job. (laughs) Keeping Donna dead so that Jesus Christ can take over is what he has called me to. And then I get to get in on what he's doing. Then I get to see him do what only he can do. I get to see people come into the kingdom. I get to pray with like that precious young woman that I prayed with Sunday morning. Tears coursing down her face when I said, baby, you love Jesus. He loves Jesus. And you live above this. God has called you to a higher standard. Choose love. Choose love. And if we will choose love, love eventually wins. Always. Always. If we just choose love. And then surrender. What is Galatians 2.20 all about? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is surrendering. And surrender literally means if I surrender, I will experience. Did you know that? That's the only way we can experience the power and the fruit of his spirit is by surrender. We'll get into this a little bit more in Galatians chapter 5 as well, but You can't manufacture fruit. It's like John 15. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are to abide in him. He's the vine, and we get our life as branches from the vine. 
We're attached to him because we are in Christ. We've been buried with him. We died to our old way of life. We've been raised to newness of life. That's what baptism is a picture of, that we've died to our old life and we're saved. We've come up to a brand new life and we're abiding in Christ now and his power and his spirit is flowing through us and he produces his fruit. You can't squeeze it out. You can't grit your teeth and be loving and patient. It doesn't work like that, does it? Because we come to the end of our love and the end of our patience, but you will never come to the end of his. But you have to come to the end of yourself before you get into his. You have to surrender in order to experience his spirit taking over, his power flowing through your life. Him giving you the ability through faith to see how he's moving and working and what he's up to. And then he invites us to get in on what he's doing. The greater the surrender, the greater the freedom. And the sanctification process takes continual surrender. Are you afraid to surrender? Are you afraid to completely let go? Come to him empty-handed and lay yourself on the altar. Just like Romans 12, 1 tells us. It's an act of worship to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to fully surrender and then watch him take over. I want to encourage you to do something that I'm asking God to make a reality in my life. I'm asking him to enable me to die to my flesh daily, which is what Jesus said. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. I'm asking him to enable me to die to my flesh daily so that I can come alive to him, but also to you. So that we connect spirit to spirit. As each of us dies to our flesh and God's spirit takes over, he connects us spirit to spirit. And guys, I'm absolutely convinced that when we recognize we can do nothing apart from him and we become desperate for him to manifest his presence in our lives, that's when we're going to experience revival. I don't know how many of you have seen what's going on at Asbury, but I have a couple of people, some friends that have been up there, and they said, guys, it's legit. It's not emotionalism. Like, it is, it's calm, it's orderly. There are pastors and professors there. They're kind of helping the students. But what happened last Wednesday was some kids stayed after chapel. They just didn't feel like they should leave. And they stayed in there and prayed. And they, and they just would spontaneously, one of them would get up and lead in worship. And then, you know, there was, I don't know, 20, 30 kids there. And then all of a sudden there's hundreds. And it hasn't stopped since last Wednesday. And people are coming from everywhere. Guys, this happened on that same campus 50 years ago. In 1970, I was in junior high, and we had a humongous influx of youth. That's where youth ministry as we know it in the Southern Baptist Convention was birthed. It was birthed in the Jesus movement. We had kids coming off the streets. We had drug addicts getting saved and set free. It was a mercy of God, an outpouring of His Spirit. Can we not get over ourselves enough? to seek his kingdom and an outpouring of his spirit. Our city is dreadfully broken. Crime is rampant. And if we don't pray and if we don't seek Jesus, there's no hope for our city. But if God in his mercy would choose to pour out his spirit upon this city, the churches in the city would not be able to hold the people. Oh, Lord, would you do that? Would you give us eyes to see what you are doing to live for you 
reckoning ourselves as already dead so that your life can flow through us unhindered, so that we can embrace others with the love of Jesus Christ and we can see brothers and sisters grow and the lost come into the kingdom. Lord, would you make it so? Let's pray. Oh, Father, mm, come, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we are so unworthy. And we acknowledge our absolute and complete dependence upon you. Jesus, we need you. You are the answer. We need you. Spirit of the living God, come. For every woman here today, I'm asking you to fill her heart and mind with your truth. To envelop her with your presence. Let her know how very much she is loved that you are literally delighting over her right now. It doesn't matter if her husband doesn't acknowledge Valentine's Day or she doesn't have a husband or she feels like nobody loves her or notices her. God, she is lavishly loved with the everlasting love of Jesus Christ and you have prepared a place for her and you are coming for us. Oh, so Lord God, may we be ready. May we be seeking you, bearing your fruit, sharing the gospel, seeing people come to Christ. And, oh, Lord God, would you entrust us with an outpouring of your spirit. Help us to live as you live, to love as you love. And may your kingdom come and your perfect will be done in our lives, on earth as is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.